It was almost like a religion, the way they felt about the river. They, they just had this feeling like uh, the river was a person. I mean, we want each and every one of you to know these stories because I genuinely believe you're going to treat the place differently if you see it the way that we've been fortunate enough to inherit. Hello, and welcome to the Confluence Podcast. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. We're a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to place through art and education. In this podcast, a Confluence story gathering, this time in Astoria, Oregon. This is a live, story-driven conversation designed to elevate Indigenous voices and our understanding of the Columbia River system. The discussion is framed by excerpts from interviews we conducted with tribal elders and leaders with our partners at Northwest Documentary. This public event was recorded on February 18, 2017, at the Liberty Theater in Astoria, or as you'll hear, in Chinook Homelands. This program is made possible by the Oregon Community Foundation, the Oregon Cultural Trust, along with Paul B. and Deborah D. Spear, Steve and Jan Oliva, and Brat and Mary Bishop. Thank you. We begin with introductions from our panel of speakers. You'll hear first from Oregon's Poet Laureate and member of the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs, Elizabeth Woody. Then it's David Lewis, a historian and member of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde. And finally, Tony Johnson is a carver and chair of the Chinook Nation. I'll introduce interview excerpts in a moment, but first, the three members of our panel will introduce themselves. My name is Elizabeth Woody, and um, I'm born for the Bitterwater Clan, which is of the Navajo Nation. It was one of the three original clans scratched from Spider Woman's shoulder in uh, Canyon de Chez. My mother is from the Columbia River, Central Oregon, and her mother was from Kanita, which is the Malihlama, the Wayampum, the Wanapum, and in the Oregon City area, Taitilpum. And I am here as an Oregon Poet Laureate as well. I was um, appointed by Governor Kate Brown and selected by six Oregon arts agencies. And I think you probably can Google me to find out anything more. Just don't do those awful websites that give you your criminal background. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I tell you, I'll find you. <laughs> no, thank you. My name is David Lewis. I am a member of the Grand Ronde tribe, a descendant of the Saniam Takelma and Chinook peoples of Western Oregon. Uh, I'm basically an anthropologist and ethnohistorian, and right now I'm kind of in the midst of writing a, um, a couple of book projects, trying to get stories out about the Kalapuyans and about the tribes of Western Oregon, mainly because, you know, uh, I believe, and I'll, I'll talk about that later, um, that most of our history has not been written properly, and so, so now... Uh, I'm looking at that really closely. Um, and I uh, teach college at various universities, uh, teach about Native Americans in Oregon, and uh, I'm just a private researcher right now, so thank you. First, it's really a pleasure to be sitting here with these guys. I mean, they're good friends and folks I've known for a long time, and 
I'd encourage you to check out Dave's uh, Dave's webpage if uh, he gets a chance. I hope he'll plug it. But really, you know, he's doing a lot of really important research, as he says, is just not well documented. So, um, my name is Tony Johnson, or Nascio, and I am the elected chairman of the Chinook Indian Nation, although I'm probably most proud of having been a 20-plus year member of the Culture Committee and chairman of that committee for a good portion of that time. And really, uh, that just says a student of our elders and community teachers, and for that I'm extremely grateful that I've had that opportunity to have really good teachers from this territory of ours. But um, my family is uh, Wakayakum, Lower Chinook, Clatsop, and then Tillamook and Chehalis from our neighbors, also Odawa, the Ottawa from the Hudson Bay Company, uh, the ancestor that was a Hudson Bay Company employee that lived and married here but mm -hmm. we'll hear more about all this later and just really thank you Colin for doing doing this and mm -hmm. and I you know I said this earlier this name Pot Choch I should just say that you know welcome to Pot Choch the welcome that we said and Pot, Pot Choch means Fort George that's the name that we inherited of this uh, town of Astoria Astoli the Pot Choch Thank you, Tony. <clears throat> and I have to say, for me, it is an honor to be on this stage with these three distinguished guests. I think that they're all uh, uh, very humble in how they introduce themselves, but they are, um, they are very significant in our world, and we are really grateful to them for, for being here. So in this discussion, we want to begin with Celilo Falls. Looking around this room, how many people remember Celilo Falls? You've been there. And what do you remember about it? The sound, the smell, the activity. It was a center of trade and culture since time immemorial. More water flowed over Celilo Falls than flows over Niagara Falls. The sound was a roar. Virginia Beavert grew up and fished along the river near the falls. She's a Yakima elder. She also went on to become a researcher's assistant and went on the islands around Celilo Falls to help interview the fishermen. It was almost like a religion, the way they felt about the river. They, they kept saying, you know, that uh, it was created for them because that's where all these people came to fish. And they, they just had this feeling like uh, the river was a person and it was providing all this, uh, the benefit for their survival, you know, food survival. And they talked about... Uh, how they uh, they had all of these taboos, and they worried about the people that uh, were supposed to observe these taboos coming down to the river to fish, because they felt like it would 
contaminate the river and uh, turn away the salmon. Now, all of the islands that Virginia interviewed those fishermen on were flooded, and the roar of the falls was silenced in 1957, almost exactly 60 years ago next month. Virginia is old enough to remember the longtime Salilo Village chief, Tommy Thompson, and his wife, Flora Kashunaway Thompson. I wrote this little paper about how Tommy Thompson must have felt as he stood there with his wife watching the rocks disappear. And I, I was teaching it in the in my class one time and my students start crying and and I said, yeah, that's the way I felt too at first when I, next time I went down there, it was all flat. That's when I cried. It was sad. It wasn't long Tommy Thompson died. His wife survived for a while, and evidently she didn't get any help from anybody, and the winter time she was trying to keep warm in this little tiny house trailer, and it caught fire and she burned up in it. It seemed like somebody should have been looking after her. Someone else who remembers Salilo Falls like it was yesterday is Johnny Jackson, who grew up with the roar of the falls in his, in his ears. Johnny is enrolled Yakima, but he's also from the river people and is known as the Cascades River Chief. Johnny fished at Salilo Falls for the Waikanish, the salmon. There's a lot of history about the river, and a lot of it is spiritual in the way the people believed and followed of respecting the Waikanish and the river and the land itself and each other. And today, we're still one people, but uh, a lot of them say that there's different names, like the Warren Springs and the Yakima. But if you go way back in the history, you'll see that they were one. And that's what I want to do is bring them back together as one. So the question I have for our panelists, based on the excerpts from these interviews that we've seen, is there a fundamental difference? Or I should say, what is the fundamental difference between the indigenous relationship with the river and the industrial relationship that we've had for the last hundred years? First of all, I'd like to respond to the description of Flora Thompson and uh, her passing in a fire. We lived up in West Hills in a hut house. Our house burned down in Madras, and I lost my grandfather there. And so we stayed in this place, and my uncle Louie, who was kind of our caretaker of my grandmother and my sister and I, was sitting in the living room, and he saw Flora Thompson walking by with a shovel and he watched her and, and he ran out there and he says, Auntie, Auntie, where are you going with that shovel? What are you doing? And she said, I am digging holes under all these fences 
because these kids can't come and visit their grandparents and they can't come visit anybody in their family because they're cut off by this fence. He said, well, wait a minute, Auntie, I'll get my shovel. And so he went and got his shovel and he dug holes with her <clears throat> on the children's paths so that they could get to one another's houses. And I think that illustrates how our families have been divided, even in these structures that are designed by the government, um, in that we weren't allowed to be our communal family very often. Uh, we had people in the Columbia River who were across the river. We had people up the river. We had people down the river. But when we were disturbed by the colonization of this country, where our Chinook nations were divided, our tribal families were divided, people were, you know, restricted to enroll at either Yakima or enroll Warm Springs. And my grandmother's brother, I mean, my grandmother's father was Chief Tommy Thompson's brother. <clears throat> and he chose to go south to Warm Springs and he married my grandmother's mother but people oftentimes said that he was Yakima, but he was Warm Springs because that's where he chose to start his family and that's where he lived. Even though her brother, the Thompsons, and his, his brother went Yakima side, but we were all one family, but because of this division by the government, we did not have much knowledge of one another, the ability to really um, bond. And when Chief Tommy Thompson passed away, they brought us a chair and they brought us beaver wrappings because chiefs' families can wear beaver wrappings and others aren't really supposed to. That's changed. The fundamental difference between people looking at a river is one, I told you already, upriver, cross river, down river. All our relatives are spread up and down that way. The other is that the river is considered a machine producer of electricity, a, a place to get your water for your irrigation. And it's a, for Indian people, it's a holy river. And it's tied to many, many other rivers. And we have people who are from these places that are, are um, the keepers of, of understanding that relationship of the sacred water. We begin our day drinking water. We end our day drinking water. We begin our meal drinking water. We end our meal drinking water. It's the first sacred food and the first medicine. And my uncle, I asked him one time, I said, so how do you keep track of all of this? I mean, what's I, I, this is really confusing to me. And he said, well, think of the sacred foods. You start at the river and you go to the mountains. He said, at the river, the water, there's the salmon. You go up higher, there's the, the deer. And you go up higher, there's the roots. You go up higher, there's the berries. You go up to the mountains, there's the snow, which is the water that comes to the river. And the river goes out to the ocean. The ocean brings in our clouds and snows on the mountain. He said, this is how our circle goes. So our first medicine, our first foods, they're the same thing. Um, I guess I'll go a different direction with that. Um, The experience of Americans on the Columbia, with the Columbia, is by and large a, a very positive experience. Since colonization and people came on the Oregon Trail and began 
using the river for its, their own purposes, taking resources from it, you know, damming it up for power sources, uh, developing communities on the river, displacing native communities. Um, and making it into now kind of a tourist destination where it's Columbia Gorge scenic, you know, area. And it's a very positive place to visit where you, you can go and see this great scenic beauty. For me and for many of us like me, it's not that his, that same story is not the same. Ours, I mean, ours is a very sad, very deep story of loss, assimilation, uh, displacement, removal to reservations. You know, Salilo, Salilo, the Dallas Dam destroyed Salilo, or much of it, not all of it. Um, our communities were essentially wiped off the map, replaced with other communities. For 100 years, and now 150 years, people have been living on reservations, many people. Racism has taken its toll on reservations with tribes. And so I, I guess I was thinking about Virginia's mention of, um, of sadness and, how, and living situations, and I'm, I was recalling how in some of my work I've been looking at the fact that we're in this situation because of colonization. The fact that the people, our people have to live in trailers and don't have rights to our land and resources and that can be taken away any moment is because of colonization and because our history and our experience has been wiped off the map. And that's coming back. But that's a very different experience from maybe what we associate with the Columbia River today. I mean, today it's a place to go visit, to drive along, to maybe stop and have a beer at some brewery somewhere, to buy clothing from, uh, you know, that says Columbia on it, which is awesome clothing. But at the same time, it's, uh, that's not, you know, the experience of our people, my people. And uh, and so I guess that's a really big difference. That's a really huge, you know, gap in in difference. And uh, I I guess I try to what I try and do, and I think a lot of us do, is try to see what we can to bring back our own rights to the river, rights to our resources, and um, bring a, normalize our cultures on the Columbia again or with the Columbia in our area again. Thanks. I'll get Tony, hug <clears throat> the mic. I uh, do want to acknowledge uh, Virginia. You know, her name is Tehumpshish. Tehumpshish, and she and I actually went to college together at one time, uh, as funny as that sounds, and when she finished her Yakima her Ichishkin Sinuit Dictionary. Uh, when I had her sign it, she signed it to her college sweetheart. <laughs> and sorry, what, sorry, my wife's sitting here. 
But, but truly, you know, I can't say enough about how important that is to me and the relationship that I have with her and the connection that all of us... I mean, this... I started talking, saying that these guys are longtime friends, and it's really important to just reiterate, I guess, this, these connections that our communities and families have. So despite all the effort of the federal government to you know, work against that, it is incredible the connections by blood, by family history, whatever it is that we all have together. So I'm just acknowledging that. And then Virginia's story reminded me, I have a great friend who was a Vietnam vet, and I knew him in Nisqually through his wife's family, but he lives back in Warm Springs, and this is Larson Kalama. Mm-hmm. And Larson was, it is a fantastic human being, and was an awesome teacher to me and his wife, Pat. And Larson told me a long time ago that his, he's a, by the way, he's a Wasco, Chinook from the Dalles, or from Salila, really, and, uh, he said that when his grandfather, when the when river was flooded, his grandfather cried for five days and died. And that's, if you know Larson or you know our own histories, we don't, we tell the truth. I mean, when he told that story, there's no doubt that that is how it went. That his grandfather cried for five days. That's the sacred number of our people and died. And then, uh, you know, this perception of the river, native perception versus a non-native perception, I just say it extends, you know, to the land. The I mean, it extends to everything, but just coming down here with my family today, I live in Willapaw Bay, by the way, you know, we are either talking about or thinking about all those landforms that you pass. Uh, we were just, I was talking to my middle son yesterday about Camp Rylea, and he was talking about the hills out there, and I was just saying what a shame it is that they don't understand the, the, what that is, that land there, because that land sitting there, you know, everybody that, you all know this territory when you go from Warrington south, it's Clatsop Plains. Well, those rolling hills there, you know how it's just the sand hills? facing the ocean. Well, they're there because Coyote got pushed up onto the hill behind there by a storm that was ocean waves raging. And he was frustrated and he threw sand out and said, it's always going to be sand. This is where the the people live. This is going to be a place for the Clatsop people. But when you're driving through those, those were at one moment, those were ocean waves, a giant storm. And, uh, you know, if you know that, you feel different about a place. If you're on the Columbia River, you know, every corner, every point, every rock has a story. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows about Pillar Rock. Well, that's my dad's grandma's village. But Pillar Rock was a boy that was turned to stone for wanting something that he wasn't supposed to want. And then here comes the Americans and blow it up to make a marker. You know, they blew the whole thing, the whole, you know, what was so impressive about it, they took away. But that was a boy standing there. 
And so, you know, one of my interests in life is teaching people from this territory. I mean, we want each and every one of you to know these stories because I genuinely believe you're going to treat the place differently if you see it the way that we've been fortunate enough to inherit. Thanks for listening to part one of the Confluence Story Gathering, recorded at the Liberty Theater in Astoria, Oregon. Sarah Fox is our sound engineer. The event crew also included Lily Hart, Megan Stetzik, and Courtney Yilk. To find out more about the work of Confluence and our project sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. Remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do the work of connecting people to place through art and education because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence. That's you. Confluence belongs to us all. Join us today at our website, confluenceproject.org.